Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Thank you. Um, I... Uh, Mr. Oh, Jamie, number. Alan, Alan is here. Sorry. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. Alan. Thank you, Mr. Alan. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry about that. I, uh, I, I had a call come through that and I just couldn't get off of it, but I'm, I'm here. <laughs> All right. Great. Great. Thank so you. So now we could actually uh, continue. Um, pursuant to committee rule 8C, opening statements are limited to the chair mm -hmm. and the ranking member. This allows us to hear from our witnesses sooner and provide all members with adequate time to ask questions. I recognize myself now for the purpose of making an opening statement. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who was taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if you're going to figure out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 157 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. May God bless America. May God bless America. Today, we meet to discuss how the pandemic has affected students with disabilities and our responsibility to ensure they have access to free and appropriate education. As this subcommittee has established, the pandemic has disrupted the education and lives of tens of millions of students across the country. But no group of students has lost more access to education during these life-saving classroom closures than students with disabilities. So to understand why we must examine the long-standing barriers to quality education for students with disabilities and how the pandemic has exacerbated these barriers. 
for students with disabilities, the promise of equal education opportunity in federal law is grounded in a basic guarantee, access to free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment that meet their, meets their needs. Under the Rehabilitation Act and the and Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, IDEA, this means that children with disabilities have the right to an individualized education plan that meets their unique needs and prepares them for lifelong learning and independent living. A right. Unfortunately, even before the pandemic, far too many students with disabilities do not receive the quality education guaranteed by law. While graduation rates for students with disabilities have improved in recent years, students with disabilities still graduate from high school at disproportionately lower rates, and many receive certificates that are not equivalent to a diploma. In many cases, this is done because students with disabilities are less capable of reaching their educational goals. It is because we have held back on our commitment to meeting their needs. For far too long, the federal government has underfunded the IDEA and state governments have failed to their responsibility to better support students with disabilities. These disparities have fallen hardest on students of color were often identified as disabled and then subjected to harsher discipline and worse educational settings. Unfortunately, the barriers to quality education for students with disabilities have only become steeper during the pandemic. Schools initially struggled to maintain educational services for students with disabilities. And without clear guidance from the Department of Education during the Trump administration, some schools determined they simply could not comply with IDEA. However, even with the full support of schools, students with disabilities still face an array of challenges, reflecting the broad diversity of this disabled community. Some students struggle with remote learning without additional materials or parents who can stay home. Many students also cannot, also cannot receive critical services like physical therapy through remote remote platforms. School, schools face challenges to safely reopening classrooms for students with disabilities who may be more vulnerable to the virus or have difficulty following the public health mandates such as mask wearing. But the transition to remote learning has also revealed helpful lessons. Remote communication has allowed some parents to more actively engage with schools, school staff and for the first time remotely access support services for their children. Additionally, some students with disabilities have reported being able to focus better in remote environments. Over the last year, Congress has taken a significant step to meet the needs of students with disabilities. Last year, we enacted several relief packages that secured more than $65 billion for K-12 education, including funding to support students with disabilities. And most recently, we enacted the American Rescue Plan, which provided more than $130 billion to help schools reopen classrooms safely, including relief for IDEA programs. We were disappointed that, despite the widespread popularity of this package, not a single House or Senate Republican voted for the bill, which provided critical resources for students, schools, and educators. 
Nonetheless, while the decision whether or not to open schools is made on the state and local level, the resources in the American Rescue Plan will help schools reopen. As of the end of February, over 80% of K-8 schools were offering some in-person instruction, and about half of schools were open full-time for in-person instructions for all students. This data comes from, comes from before the CDC updated their guidance and before most educators were able to get vaccinated. So schools have continued to reopen to more students in the past several weeks. And as vaccines become available to students, reopening schools for full-time in-person instruction will no longer pose an imminent threat to students and staff. However, our work is far from over. So we continue today with the help of our witnesses, we will discuss how we can learn from the lessons of this pandemic to ensure equal access to education for all students with disabilities. We may disagree on the means, but I know each of us agrees that now more than ever, we must uphold our promise to give all students with disabilities the opportunity to reach their full potential. That is their right. I want to thank our witnesses again for being with us. I now turn to the ranking member, Mr. Allen, who is sitting in for Mr. Owens for the purpose of making an opening statement. Sir, Mr. Allen, please. Uh Thank you, Chairman, and it's good to be with you again. And uh, unfortunately, Representative Owens had uh, travel delays this morning, and he's on a plane right now. Uh, but he sends in his, his sincere regrets to the members and the witnesses, and, and thanks all for being here today. And hopefully uh, he gets in in time to, uh, uh, to be able to join us. Uh, for the last 107 days, President Biden and my Democratic friends have ignored the science at the expense of our nation's students, especially those with disabilities. Uh, you know, this is not a partisan talking point. Uh, the New York Post recently reported on the Biden administration's effort to appease teachers unions on school reopening policies with the American Federation of Teachers referring to itself as the CDC's uh, thought partner. Democrats on this very committee accuse the Trump administration of politicizing the CDC, but ignore the Biden administration's blatant attempts to bend science to the will of its political allies. To those students, educators, and families watching at home, let me be clear. The science is settled. Schools can and should safely open right now, and they've been open the entire year in the 12th District of Georgia. Research demonstrates that school-aged children are less likely to transmit the virus to others, including adults. Even in areas with high community spread, schools can safely reopen with three feet of social distancing and proper masking. Over 80% of K-12 teachers have been vaccinated, and the FDA is set to expand Pfizer vaccine eligibility for 12 to 15-year-olds as early as next week. A, miracle, a, a medical miracle. This evidence is overwhelming, but still only 49% of school districts are currently open for in-person instructions. That is a far cry from Pre President Biden's promise to fully reopen schools in his first 100 days. The effects of school closures are heightened for students with disabilities. 
as many special needs children benefit from consist consistent and attentive in-person instruction and services. Kids with special needs need routine. And I know this firsthand as my granddaughter has special needs. She has just turned four years old. She can't sit up and she can't walk and she can't talk. But she has the most beautiful smile and loves her daddy big. All she does is hug my neck when I sit with her. Uh, but, you know, thankfully, Hampton School didn't close. And, and they had to deal with COVID. And she's in full time because at her school, she receives physical therapy. And if she goes even a week without physical therapy, it sets her back a month. When you take these kids away from the classroom, it hurts them incredibly. They need to be in school. The lack of access to in-person instruction and services raises serious concerns about the impact of their academic progress and mental health is a huge, huge issue. Among all students, self-reported uh, mental health ratings dropped 40% since 2019, and mental health-related emergency room visits are up 31% for, for children ages 12 to 17. Today, we'll have the opportunity to hear from Reed Bush, a father of two special needs children for whom those uh, numbers are more than just statistics. They are living a reality. Mr. Bush was forced to watch his nine-year-old son deteriorate before his eyes to be admitted to a hospital because of the mental toil from social isolation. Mrs. Bush was forced to quit her job and homeschool their nine-year-old daughter after their public school failed to meet their daughter's individualized education program needs citing a virtual four-day school week. I'd like to send prayers to the Bush family and thank Reed for being willing to open up about this experience. We cannot sit idly by while our children cry out for help. The CDC notes that children with disabilities are particularly impacted by the lack of interaction with peers as a result of online learning. This is in addition to projected learning loss, which is expected to be as high as 12 months for some children. Unfortunately, even state and local leaders in many areas across the country have failed to provide adequate protections for students and their families. Parents are rightly frustrated. It is unbelievable that in America, parents must fight for their special needs students and have the bare minimum of services provided to them. These are the taxpayers. Sadly, no, no matter how hard a school district works, remote learning cannot fully meet the needs of all students with disabilities. While distance learning is acceptable under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, there are statewide and district-wide policies that reduce or limit services specifically for students with disabilities. Simply put, remote learning is making it more difficult for all students to learn and exacerbating difficulties for those most vulnerable students. The democratic strategy, to put it generously, is not working. No amount of funding can cover for the president's weak leadership and coziness with groups that do not, that do not have the students' best interests in mind. While I am glad Democrats are acknowledging the difficulties facing students with disabilities during the pandemic, this hearing is pointless if Democrats continue to ignore the science and reject common sense Republican proposals that would direct federal funds toward reopening schools. Republicans are more concerned with what a year of learning loss will do to a generation of young people than we are in upsetting a few liberal elites. It's time Democrats were too. I want to thank all of our witnesses for joining us for what I hope will result in a firm commitment to reopen schools to help those with disabilities. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back.
thank you, thank you, thank you very much, um, Mr. Allen. Um, I um, would now like to uh, recognize the witnesses. Um, let me start by recognizing um, Dr. I'm going to try this, Dr. Kobash, um, a special education teacher and president-elect for the Council for Exceptional Children. Um, Dr. Kobash has been a special ed teacher and general education teacher at Tusa Trail Elementary School for 23 years and received her doctorate in special education from Walden University. Dr. Kobash currently teaches third grade in a self-contained classroom and also teaches as an adjunct professor at Centenary University. Dr. Kobash was Teacher of the Year in New Jersey in 2011 and is the president of, of the Council for Exceptional Children. Um, Ms. Canila A. Littleton is project director for Michigan's Alliance for Families and uh, where she is dedicated to supporting families of students with disabilities, helping them to navigate complex issues related to uh, special education programs and services. She has a BA in sociology and a master's degree in medical sociology from Wayne State University, and is also the mother of three children with disabilities, including a transition aid autistic son. Um, Mr. Ron B. Hager is uh, managing a 24 employment and education at uh, the National Disability Rights Network. He, uh, he provides training and technical assistance to the PNAs on special education and assistive technology and assist in overseeing training and technical assistance to CAP. He has specialized in disability law, particularly special education since 1979 when he started his legal career in Buffalo as a VISTA attorney. After that, he was a clinical professor at the State University of New York uh, at Buffalo uh, Law School for nine years, supervising the education law clinic. clinic. In 1991, our Dr. Mr. Hager moved to neighborhood legal services where he represented clients in a wide variety of disability related uh, cases and as part of NLS National AT Advocacy Project. Um, Mr. Hager uh, also was a frequent author on disability law-related issues. He was co-chair of the New York State Bars Association. Um, committee Association Committee on the Rights of People with Disabilities for four years and was the president of the Board of Directors of Autistic Services, Inc. in Western New York for 10 years. Uh, Mr. Hager earned a BA in psychology from the State University of New York at, at Bing, Binghamton and a JD from the State University of New York at Buffalo Law School. Uh, Breed Bush uh, is a parent uh, from Arlington, lives in Arlington, Virginia. Um, Mr. Bush is a physician assistant with 17 years of experience in emergency medicine in the Washington, D.C. area. Additionally, Mr. Bush provides medical support at many large events, including the State of the Union Address and Presidential Inauguration. Um, prior to his work in the medical field, Mr. Bush volunteered as a firefighter paramedic for 15 years and responded 
to the Pentagon on September 11, 2011. He also treated congressional members and staff who were exposed to anthrax. In the past year, during COVID-19 school closures, Mr. Bush has been a strong advocate for access to in-person learning for children with special needs, as he and his wife have two adopted children from Haiti, both of whom have significant special needs. Mr. Booth holds an undergraduate degree from the College of William and Mary and a master's in health from George Washington University. Let me also um, share with uh, our witnesses uh, that um, I uh, have a, I'm an individual with a, a significant disability and I was very happy to have chaired our State Rehabilitation Council for four years uh, before learning to become a politician. But thank you everyone for um, joining us today. So um, I'd like to first invite Mr. Hager. Um, I, did I say that right, Hager? Yes, thank you. Okay, Mr. Hager, you have five minutes, sir. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Sablan, Ranking Member Allen, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Ron Hager, and I'm an imagining managing attorney at the National Disability Rights Network, NDRN. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on K-12 students with disabilities. The protection and advocacy and client assistance programs, the PNAs and CAPS, comprise a nationwide network of congressionally mandated disability organizations operating in every state and territory. NDRN believes in the right of all students including those with disabilities, to an equitable and appropriate education in a safe environment. NDRN seeks to accomplish this goal through the PNA network. We believe this work has become even more important in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. Students with disabilities already faced many challenges in schools, which COVID has exacerbated. As schools transition back to in-person learning, it is critical that our schools are prepared to meet the academic, and social and emotional needs of all of our students, especially those with disabilities. Unfortunately, parents of children with disabilities have long lacked the resources needed to help them understand and navigate the educational system. Throughout the pandemic, the PNA network has worked to ensure students receive the services they are entitled to. This work has included meeting with state agencies to develop policies to support students with disabilities with other stakeholders including the Parent Training and Information Centers. Our network has represented clients in individual and systemic cases all over the country. While the path to recovery is long, we know that we owe it to students with disabilities and all students to rebuild a system that is inclusive, individualized, and responsive to their needs. While students with disabilities have faced particular challenges during the pandemic, the students most negatively impacted are those at the intersection of disability and other marginalized identities, including students with disabilities who are also students of color, from low income, English language learners, experiencing homelessness, and in institutional settings such as juvenile justice, and a juvenile detention, and residential treatment. Throughout the pandemic, many schools failed to provide the individualized services students with disabilities needed. For example, some schools that recently reopened were unwilling to allow immunocompromised students to continue to learn and receive services in home. On the other hand, some schools that were closed refused to provide in-person instruction to students who needed it. 
Both students with significant disabilities and less significant disabilities struggled in their remote learning environment. We also continue to encounter overly punitive discipline imposed on students with disabilities during remote learning. Students with behavioral, emotional, and mental health needs were suspended from virtual instruction. In one instance, a student with a disability became involved with the juvenile justice system for failing to complete her online schoolwork. Finally, we encountered schools changing IEP services through distance learning plans without changing the IEP. Here are two examples of the work the PNAs have been doing during the pandemic. In New Hampshire, the PNA successfully obtained guidance from the governor that despite school closures, students with disabilities would be eligible for in-person services if needed. Nevertheless, the PNA was forced to advocate in several school districts who refused to provide in-person services. The PNA in California conducted successful systemic advocacy against two school districts for failing to comply with the IDEA. The most pressing concern for students is how to make up for the loss they have experienced. We recommend the following. Schools should implement the multi-tier system of approach or MTSS model, which provides a floor for remedial services that will benefit all students. Students with disabilities may need to be considered for additional individualized services pursuant to the IEP process for compensatory education. Schools must also consider the emotional and behavioral needs of students and how to anticipate how to address those needs. In addition to students who have already been identified through the IEP process, we anticipate more students becoming eligible for services under IDEA in Section 504. Finally, we urge Congress to pass dedicated additional funding for the PNA network to address the educational needs of students with disabilities impacted by COVID. In closing, we urge the Department of Education to issue guidance on making up instructional loss using the MTSS model and on how to best utilize compensatory educational services. I appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today and look forward to answering any questions you may have. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you very much, um, Mr. Hager. Um, and next, I will go to Ms. Littleton. Uh, Ms. Littleton, you have uh, five minutes, please. Good afternoon, Chairman Sablon, Ranking Member Allen, and members of the Early Childhood Elementary and Secondary Education Subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to testify at today's hearing addressing the impact of COVID-19 on students with disabilities. My name is Kanika Littleton and I am the Director of Michigan's Federally Funded Parent Training and Information Center, Michigan Alliance for Families. Funded through Part D of IDEA, there are 94 parent centers across the country who assist parents to positively impact their children's education and post-secondary outcomes. I am also the parent of three children receiving education, support, and services under IDEA in Section 504. My children are 16-year-old Christian, who has autism, Brittany, who is 14 with anxiety and inattentive ADHD, and six-year-old Aiden, who also struggles with anxiety. The impact of, COVID of the COVID-19 pandemic is significant for students with disabilities and those from traditionally marginalized populations. The educational challenges are unprecedented and require immediate attention. Educators and families working together is vital to moving forward. Today, I'm speaking to you as a parent and professional who has observed the challenges of the pandemic has created for my own children and the students across Michigan. I want to highlight five areas of concern, including teacher shortages, access to technology, social emotional health, 
family engagement, and individualized education program implementation. Several states are facing higher teacher shortages exacerbated by reasons related to the pandemic. In Michigan, teacher resignations have increased by nearly 42% this school year. Often districts must rely on substitutes who lack the education and training to educate and support students with the most significant needs, leaving these students at, greater, at a greater disadvantage than their typical peers. Inequity in resources has negatively impacted students with disabilities, especially students of color and those living in poverty and non-traditional home environments, including foster care and group homes. These students are overwhelmingly educated in districts with less financial re and human resources. They have less access to educational materials and the support essential to participating in remote learning. Moving forward, it is vital that states have the necessary resources to prioritize providing assistive technology, devices, internet access, and assistance with navigating learning platforms for all students. The lack of social interaction with teachers and peers during remote learning has clearly taken a toll on our young people especially those with anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions. They may have loved ones who have become ill or passed away. Their family may be struggling with food and housing insecurities, or they may have trouble, no support network to help them. Many days I've watched my own daughter struggle to make it out of bed, ultimately affecting her school performance. It is necessary for districts to have the resources needed to support social and emotional health, including access to school mental health services and utilizing multi-tiered systems of supports. Parents and caregivers of students with disabilities often found themselves in the position of implementing their children's IEP at home. Many parents found this to be extremely challenging, often lacking the necessary skills needed to support their students. This highlights a need for educators and service providers to meaningfully engage with families during the pandemic including recognizing family barriers and implementing culturally responsive practices, utilizing strategies to support at-home learning and partnering with parent training and information centers to provide parent education. As states figure out how to adequately support students with disabilities during the pandemic, many students have experienced delays in evaluations and failed implementation of their IEP, including access to specialized instruction, related services and transition supports. For example, both of my sons will be receiving recovery services this summer to offset the loss of learning during school closures and remote learning. It is imperative that these challenges are addressed in a way that assists students in recovery of acceleration of learning. States must have the supports to hire more educators, curriculum experts, support staff, and invest in high quality evidence-based approaches to support recruitment and accelerating acceleration of learning for all students. I'd like to acknowledge and offer gratitude to Congress for the existing increases in funding, including $13 billion through the CARES Act, $54 billion through the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act, and $130 billion through the American Rescue Plan, which includes specific funding towards IDEA. This funding will allow states to begin addressing the critical needs of students with disabilities as they transition back to in-person learning. However, more is needed to ensure our students, regardless of disability, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, have equitable access to quality education and support during and after the pandemic. Additionally, as more needs are identified, perhaps it is time to reauthorize IDEA so that as a nation, we are prepared to continue supporting all learners under any circumstance. I hope this committee has found this information to be helpful, and I look forward to answering any questions you may have.
Well, thank, thank you. I'm, I'm sure your, your, your testimony and all the testimonies of all witnesses are always very useful to the community. Thank you, Ms. Littleton. Um, I would like to now recognize Mr. Bush for, uh, for five minutes, please. Good afternoon, Chairman Savlin, Ranking Member Owens, and members of the Early Childhood Elementary and Secondary Education Subcommittee, and Mr. Allen. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you today as you address the impact of COVID-19 on students with disabilities. My wife and I have two beautiful adopted children from Haiti, both with special needs. They are nine years old and attend public school in Arlington, Virginia. I wanna highlight how destructive the last year of closed schools and virtual learning has been for our kids, as well as many other students with disabilities across the country. Our son is diagnosed with autism and ADHD. Before school closed, he was a very happy boy who loved school, especially being around his friends. But things changed quickly after schools closed. The lack of social contact and the routine of a normal school day, which are incredibly important to children with autism, caused him to create an imaginary world last spring with 52 friends, as he told us. By summer, his imaginary world had become so real to him that he struggled to differentiate real from the pretend causing him to have visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations, which became so bothersome to him that on his ninth birthday, he asked me, Daddy, can I die for my birthday? In November, he was admitted to Children's National Hospital for four days. The doctors told us that his symptoms were from a massive deterioration of his autism due to social isolation. He ended up on six medications, and the doctors said what he needed most was to return to full-time, in-person learning, so that he could begin to solidify his identity with real in-person teachers and peers. During the fall, as we watched him deteriorate before our eyes and not be able to engage in virtual learning, we pleaded with school administrators to open school for in-person learning for students with disabilities, which aligned with the guidelines by the Virginia Department of Health and Governor Northam, who allowed special learners to return for in-person school as far back as last June. However, school administrators told us it was not safe to reopen for in-person learning. This despite the fact that many private schools throughout the DC area and country had successfully reopened. Eventually in November, our school system in Arlington opened for a small number of students to provide what they called in-person support. This placed our son, hear this, this placed our son in a classroom all by himself to learn on an iPad while being monitored by an extended day staffer. It did not give him the in-person learning and peer social contact that the doctors prescribed. So we requested that the school place him in a private needs, special needs school, which was open with teachers and peers five days a week. But the school's IEP team members refused. So he stayed on an iPad in a classroom all by himself for the next four months. Our daughter is in second grade. She has cerebral palsy, a speech disorder, and an intellectual disability, meaning her IQ is around 58. Her IEP calls for 30 hours of special education per week. In August, the Arlington School System asked us to agree to reduce her hours of support to reflect a shorter virtual four-day school week. We refused to sign the IEP with reduced hours because she needs every hour of instruction that she can get. Since Arlington Schools went ahead and reduced her learning hours and because she was unable to engage in learning over an iPad, my wife was forced to quit work to homeschool her. So how do things stand now? Our schools finally opened part-time in March with shortened school days, while many private and public schools have been open in person five days a week since last fall. Sadly, the learning losses continue to pile up. In fact, just in the first quarter of the year, the number of failing grades was up 6% among students with disabilities in Arlington. Our son is a full year behind in reading, we just learned last week. 
Despite assurances from school administrators last year that they would provide robust learning recovery when schools reopen, the school told us last week they would give him only 30 minutes of reading recovery per week. 30 minutes a week. We asked for more, but they flatly refused. Other than offering a four-week summer school program, which by no means will make up for a lost year of learning, Arlington has no substantive plan to catch up special needs kids. They have no plans to hire additional reading, speech, or occupational therapists. They expect existing staff to carry their full caseloads and catch kids up. Kids will never be caught up at this rate, which will result in vast inequities in educational outcomes for the most needy children. One lesson learned from the past year is that schools should never be allowed to close long-term again. For children with disabilities, schools are like hospitals and that the schools are the primary providers of rehabilitative services such as speech, occupational therapy and physical therapy and social emotional learning. Our kids were without speech and OT services for six months and these services still remain virtual for the vast majority of kids today. And the psychological and learning losses and equities continue to pile up. I will close by saying that in Arlington and many other places across the country, schools remain only partially open. By contrast, in Haiti, where our kids were born, schools have been open full-time since the fall. Haiti, as you know, has no healthcare system, has no access to the COVID vaccine, and is one of the most under-resourced countries in the world. If Haiti can find a way to open up schools full-time, then certainly schools here in the US, and certainly in Arlington, Virginia, one of the wealthiest school systems in the country, should be able to open fully now too, especially for these special needs kids. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your testimony, including the, some of the, your personal uh, experiences with your children, Mr. Bush. Uh, um, Thank you. Um, and now I'd like to um, recognize uh, Dr. Kovac. Did I, do I get that right, Dr. Kovac? Yes, Kovac. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, you now have uh, five minutes, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chairman Sablon, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Owens, Ranking Member Dr. Fox, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Danielle Kovach, and I'm a third grade special education teacher at Tulsa Trail Elementary School in Hopaka, New Jersey. I am also the president-elect of the Council for Exceptional Children. CEC is a professional association of 22,000 educators dedicated to advancing the success of infants, toddlers, children, and youth with disabilities and or gifts and talents. And most importantly, I'm the mother of three boys two of whom currently receive special education services. And I am joining you from my basement that has been transformed into a classroom for virtual learning. I would like to start by thanking you for enacting emergency funds to address acute needs in K through 12 schools and for including targeted funds for the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act in the Rescue Plan Act. My job is to ensure that my students receive a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. When our school went remote, we had no time to prepare ourselves or our students for virtual learning. With their kids at home from school, many parents could not work and some lost their jobs. Several students did not have access to the internet. Without access to school lunches, children were hungry. And there was the constant worry about COVID-19. It was the perfect storm. 
My grade level team and I rose to the challenge. We collaborated through Google Meet and gave teacher-led mini workshops on how to navigate Google Classroom. I watched and shared every webinar I could find that offered credible information about effective teaching from a virtual platform. CEC also provided a wealth of information, especially through the CEC community, an online forum where special educators from across the country can connect and share ideas while teaching during the pandemic. To support parents, I resent their child's individual education program or their IEP, and I walked them through agreed upon modifications to have a mutual understanding about what we could do together to support their children. I created a website for parents to engage with their children at home, both academically and social emotionally. When a student in my class struggled with reading, my paraeducator sat outside that student's home and read to her. We went into this school year better prepared. Thanks in large part to targeted emergency funding through the CARES Act, all students and personnel now have devices and my school district provided technology workshops and professional development and developed a virtual hybrid learning schedule and a plan for providing instruction for each student. In-person instruction is much different now, but we have adapted and innovated to ensure our students still receive what they need. Gone from my classroom are the sensory corner and learning stations. They've been replaced with individually, individual sensory tools. Learning centers went from hands-on activities to interactive activities in Google Classroom. My classroom library went virtual and so did our class treasure chest where students can earn their rewards. We transitioned our Cafe Kids Cooking and Life Skills program to the Cafe Kids Virtual Food Network. I continually worry about the impact of the pandemic on student mental health and social emotional development. I constantly ask myself, are my students getting enough? Am I giving them everything they need? These questions are the reason that I have not had a solid night's sleep since March 13th, 2020. There is more that Congress can do to be sure the dollars that have been invested have a lasting impact. We are deep into an educator shortage crisis that predates the pandemic. This crisis extends beyond personal shortages. Higher education programs that prepare the nation's special education workforce are closing. There is a shortage of faculty to support new special education teacher candidates. And there is still much to learn about teacher early retirement and the exodus from the educator profession triggered by the pandemic. ARP does provide flexibility to invest in educators in the short term, but I fear most districts will forego these investments without sustainable funding to prevent layoffs when the ARP funds run dry. To truly recover from the pandemic and address long-term needs, many of which predate the pandemic, Congress must fully fund IDEA. One thing is for certain, special education teachers, like all teachers, will do anything to help their students succeed, but they could do so much more for so many more students with sustainable investments. Thank you for having me here today to share my story. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kovach. And uh, I, uh, I also, uh, it was when schools were just starting to open up face-to-face -face instruction. There is a middle school here, and I did. I had I visited one of the teachers uh, who happened to 
have a class. And uh, then I walked up to the library because this school was badly devastated by a super typhoon, the second largest in the nation. And um, I walked in and I found two students with, um, uh, with special needs. And then uh, in walked this individual who was a special, special ed teacher uh, who happens to be my son also. So uh, it was a nice uh, meeting at school campus, but thank you very much for your, uh, for your, um, um, I'm getting a message. Okay, so uh, I'd like to next um, start the questioning with um, Mr. Scott, you wanna go first or Ms. Hayes, Johanna? Ms. Hayes, please, you have five minutes. Mr. Scott, were you going to answer? Right. Chairman? Uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to go, uh, I'd like to go first if possible, but... Um, yes. I don't know any problems with the chairman. <laughs> okay, Chairman Scott, you have five minutes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I have to have to leave at uh, three thirty for another for another meeting, so I appreciate it. Um, Thank you, John. Uh, first, 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 let me uh, just say that uh, Democrats have been. Um, a comment was made earlier um, about uh, following science. The Democrats have been trying to follow the CDC guidelines, where we've noticed that many of the guidelines require funding. Um, we first look at the uh, according to CDC the community spread but also separation, including transportation, which means more money for transportation, proper ventilation, which means many school systems have to fix their ventilation systems, mask wearing and testing and uh, contact tracing uh, protocols, which also cost money. And that money can be found in the uh, rescue plan. And so the school district should not have any problem complying with the CDC guidelines and opening. Um, let me ask um, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Hager. Uh, we found in the Andrew F. case that the uh, Supreme Court um, said that you couldn't get away with just um, any old kind of services. You had to provide meaningful services based on the uh, capabilities of the student. What uh, implications does uh, does that have for the? Um, uh, students going back after the pandemic? Well, generally speaking, Andrew F. sets a high bar for the services that students with disabilities should be expected to achieve. So as students are coming back with disabilities, we need to catch them up. We need to be looking at how far behind they are and make sure that they get the services they need. Uh, it has to be enough. To, it has to be individualized. It can't be one size fits all. That's another key principle of NGOF. It has to be individualized. Secondly, NGOF emphasized the importance of maintaining students in the least restrictive environment. Students should be educated with their non-disabled peers to the maximum extent appropriate. Thirdly, NGOF recognized the importance that an education is not just about academics. It's also about the emotional and behavioral needs. So as students return, we cannot just look at educational loss. We have to also look at the behavioral needs of these students. Um, thank you. And uh, Ms. Littleton, um, can you say uh, a little bit about what we need to look at to um, 
uh, deal with the fact that the uh, Department of Education's Civil Rights uh, Division, Office of Civil Rights has pointed out that students with disabilities are disproportionately subjected to exclusionary discipline such as uh, suspensions, expulsions, uh, restraint and, and seclusion. What do we need to be looking at as students return to school to avoid um, inappropriate discipline? What do we need to do? Ms. Littleton, sorry. I'm sorry, I was having technical difficulty. Okay. Difficulty. Thank you for your question, Chairman Scott. Um, I believe that one of the things that we need to look at, you're correct that there are certainly going to be, um, you know, an increase in disciplinary um, issues. Children are coming back that may have faced trauma. Um, you know, so I, I believe that the investment, again, in those multi-tiered systems of support um, is a proactive approach for schools to take, especially implementing positive behavior interventions and supports as students come back. Um, of course, you know, schools will need the funding to make sure that um, educators and service providers have the training that is necessary for that. Michigan actually, Michigan's Multi-Tiered Systems of Supports Technical Assistance Center is funded through Part D of IDEA and is providing technical assistance to all states on the utilization of multi-tiered systems of supports. Um, our state has been phenomenal in providing that education to um, educators as well as families. We actually conducted a um, education sim uh, symposium for teachers going back to school. And one of the focuses was to make sure that we have effective, le effective learning environments as children return to school and focused on social emotional health, including implementing those tools set forth in or with MTSS and positive behavior interventions and supports. Okay, I'm, trying to get an, I'm trying to get in another question uh, just very briefly. Yes. For your organization and, and the other two that represent organizations, you have a, uh, a, 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 are you looking at the spending, how the money from the uh, rescue uh, plan will be spent to make sure it's appropriately being spent to uh, deal with um, the, the students with disabilities and, um, and others to eliminate achievement gaps are actually being well spent. Do you have a capability of reviewing that? On the we, local, especially on the local level. So on the local level, we are looking at the funding that's coming at our center again is funded through the part of that part D funding of IDEA that's coming through um, that was uh, provided through the American Rescue Plan. So we are looking at that and we're looking at how we're using those resources to, again, support parent training and information, as well as working with schools to promote, um, you know, things like multi-tier systems of support and technical assistance. I just wanted Mr. Hager yeah. to indicate whether his um, organization is looking at the money coming in to make sure the budget is budgeting the money appropriately. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Scott. Could 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 he just for, yeah well, please well, Mr. Just, Hager. Just, my, my, my time has expired so if the witnesses in in written responses can uh, just review what they what their organizations are doing to look some of the school districts are getting massive amounts of money and we want to make sure that um, everybody is um, uh, nobody's being left behind and the achievement gaps are being appropriately dealt with uh, thank you Mr Chairman.
Thank, thank you, thank you, Mr. Scott. Thank you, um, and Mr. Allen. Um, I'll recognize uh, Mr. Allen now for five minutes, sir. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thanks to our witnesses and uh, for the opportunity to uh, talk about this important issue uh, facing our nation today, uh, Mr. Bush. I want to thank you for your testimony. It's heartbreaking, but also inspiring to hear how you and your wife have sacrificed for your kids and fought for them. It says in your bio that you have 17 years of experience as an emergency medicine phys physician assistant. I was just curious, uh, have you had to go into work during the pandemic? Uh, yes, sir. I've worked some during the pandemic, although um, doing a COVID testing center, uh, However, I was limited in my ability to work because both of our kids require one-to-one -one support to access their learning. And even though that is supposedly guaranteed under IDEA and FAPE, uh, they were stuck virtually at home all fall. And so I had to sit home working with my son individually. My wife worked with our daughter individually. So uh, it was hard for me to actually really provide medical support to people during the pandemic because I was uh, stuck at home. Uh, but uh, you, you, you would have uh, otherwise you would have been uh, uh, been there for your patients. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, yeah. I actually and I've worked through five pandemics and, you yeah. know, I, I understand that, you know, a lot of teachers were concerned you know, about going back uh, initially. Uh, but, uh, you know, the reality is, is I, I was at a loss for why so many teachers just seemingly couldn't return to, to help these kids, especially in our school system. Um, now there were some teachers individually that told me they wanted to come back, you know, and work, but they were not allowed to. But the, the, the irony is that, uh, you know, there are, there are just many kids out there suffering and there, there was nobody really in person to support them. So we spent the last year basically with kids trying to learn virtually, which is really, really, you know, impossible or almost impossible for, for many of these kids with special needs. Uh, you said in your testimony that schools should never be closed long-term again. Can you explain your recommendation in a little more detail? Yeah, so I understand, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of unknowns, uncertainties, and it was necessary to close schools down for a while. Um, but after a while, we the science started to emerge. We saw other school systems across the world opening up, and certainly across the country, we saw a lot of private schools opening up. And um, really, it was like, why can't we open up the schools for these kids, uh, for the kids with special needs, as you mentioned, that and you said you're, you have a granddaughter that has special needs and really benefits from this physical therapy in the schools. Yes, um, it's the same for our kids and many yeah. other kids. It's PT, you know, physical therapy, <laughs> occupational therapy, speech therapy. Those things just, you know, you, it's very hard to deliver them virtually. Yeah. So uh, you, you you need to know that we offered an amendment when our committee marked up the education provisions of the so-called American Rescue Plan that would have required states to provide students education savings accounts when public schools refused to reopen that would allow parents to use those funds in those accounts to pay for private school tuition and purchase addi additional education services or materials for their students who were not allowed to go back to school. Would that have benefited your family? Uh, absolutely. We spent about $800 on homeschool curriculum for our daughter. And for our son, as, as he was deteriorating psychologically and the doctors were saying he needs in-person learning and the school system was refusing to give it to him and instead putting him in his classroom all by himself, 
we were we were desperate. I mean, we just felt like we're in a failing school system, and we really wanted to get him into a private special needs school. But around here, those schools cost about forty five thousand dollars a year for one child. That would have been almost ninety thousand for both of our kids a year. So um, absolutely, any you know funding would have would have would have helped for us to get our kids the support and the the, the, the learning that they needed because they just couldn't learn virtually. Right. Well. Uh, unfortunately, that amendment was defeated, and uh, and that uh, uh, provision was not available. Uh, from your standpoint, um, and obviously uh, you you represent. Uh, I mean, I mean, you walk you walked the, the talk, okay? Uh, you, you're real world, and like I said, uh, somehow these intellectuals sometimes uh, try to paint a different picture. But uh, well, I'm out of time. Listen, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it and telling your story. Uh, the nation needs to hear it. Uh, my committee members need to hear it. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I will yield back. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Allen. So now I recognize the very generous Miss um, um, Ace. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And thank you to all the witnesses today for taking part in this very important um, hearing that we're having. We all care very deeply about this conversation, this topic. Uh, Mr. Bush, your story has resonated very personally with me. And I want you to know that Democrats do care, which is why we voted for $122 billion in education funding with $3 billion of that carved out for specifically for special education because we understood and recognized what was happening and that our children needed help. So every single one of us voted for the package that sent much needed relief. This week, I met with students in my own district at the Fresh Start School in Canton, Connecticut. Fresh Start is a school that st serves students on the autism and related dis disorder spectrum, and it gives them a place to learn and thrive. Met much of what I heard at Fresh Start is what is being echoed in this committee hearing today. I talked directly to the children. I also know from my own time in the classroom, 15 years working with high-need students in a Title I school district, um, that those districts struggle more than others to meet the needs of their students. And this has only gotten worse with COVID. Part of the issue, and we've heard this over and over, is that for many of our students, they receive all of their services at school. So this is, which are, which is a, all of these problems become school-based issues. We have to make sure that community supports are there as well. I also cannot move on without just once again, as I say in so many hearings that We've, we hear over and over disparaging comments about teachers' unions. Teachers' unions are teachers. And the questions that they asked throughout this pandemic were questions that address the safety of their children. A school building is not equipped in the same way as a medical facility is that is open to, to address medical emergencies, that has personal protective equipment and hand-washing stations and staff that are trained in universal precautions and all of the things that are, are necessary for combating a pandemic. So teachers raising those questions was not about teachers, it was about their children. I can say that with fidelity as a certified teacher. Mr. Littleton, you mentioned in your written testimony that you, that you anticipate the consequences of this past year will impact multiple marginalized students, such as students of color with disabilities, the most in terms of long-term consequences. My question is, can you provide us more details on how we can prioritize prioritize these students and prevent long-term inequity stemming from this pandemic 
And how do we target assistance towards districts that serve these marginalized children? Thank you for your question, Representative Hayes. Um, I believe that it first starts with looking at um, the family engagement is a really important piece, um, especially for when you're working with families who have marginalized backgrounds, whether it be student of colors, families living in poverty. Um, so training for educators and support staff to really know and understand how to provide culturally responsive practices when engaging families. That, you know, that means looking at the barriers that these families have. These families have working parents who may be outside of the home who couldn't assist with remote learning while children were learning at home. So working around that to find ways to support learning at home, finding ways to support any emotional um, trauma that may be going on in the home, I think is very important. Also, I have to be honest, hiring support staff and educators who look like the people in the community is really important. So I think working with higher education um, institutions to really recruit and sustain um, people, you know, people, teachers of color will be very beneficial. And um, I completely understand that, which is why I have introduced legislation to both diversify the education profession and to save education jobs, which is all of those support personnel that you're talking about, because I, like you, appreciate what is happening on the ground in a practical setting and how all of these people are needed. Um, there was a pre-pandemic GAO study that indicated that parents from low-income school districts are less likely to file dispute resolution, such as due process or mediation, because they don't really understand the process. And I think this kind of speaks to what Mr. Bush talked about, where parents are trying to advocate for their children. My question was for Mr. Hager, and my time is about to run out, so I'll ask the question and just ask that maybe you submit the answers in written testimony. Do you believe that these parents have when parents have sufficient understanding of their rights and sufficient access to representation and support, how are they able to advocate and provide meaningful access for their children? And what can we do at the federal level to make that part of the process more equitable so that when parents are seeking services, every parent knows how to access those services? My time has expired, but I'd appreciate you. you could respond to that question right Thank you, Representative Hayes. Thank you, Mr. Hager. Thank you, uh, uh, Ms. Hayes. Um, now I'd like to recognize who's going to go first, Ms. Lello or Ms. Steele? Ms. Steele is senior. Ms. Lello. <laughs> Ms. Lello's been here the whole time. You want to go? Who, you, the two of you, flip a coin. Okay. Uh, whoever goes first, I'm fine, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I am the fresh one of the freshmen so thank you for recognizing me and thank you for uh chair thank you chairman and thank you ranking member and all the witnesses i'm just so grateful that you all are here mr bush thank you for sharing your testimony with the committee your family story and what your children have gone through is heartbreaking <clears throat> it is sad and unacceptable that school districts across this country turn their backs on their most vulnerable children. We had another hearing a little over a month ago about the harm that has been done to vulnerable students over the last year. Republicans invited a parent of a child with a disability to that hearing as well. And she told us that she was forced to find alternative private school options for some of her children 
when her public school closed. You mentioned that you would have done that had there been open seats and that you had you had been able to afford it. So, Mr. Bush, from what you know, what is that um, these private schools managed to safely reopen when your local public school did not? Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. I, I think the private schools looked at the data uh, last summer and other school systems and saw that schools were safely opening. And so they thought outside of the box and figured out ways to make it work and they made it work. And unfortunately, um, you know, a, a lot of the private schools have more, even more limited capacity than the public schools do, yet they were still able to do it. But unfortunately, you know, the public schools, even, even for the special needs kids where we live, couldn't even figure out a way to get a small number of special needs kids, the highest learning special or highest party special needs kids back to school. So, um, you know, meanwhile, parents with across our county with kids with special needs are watching uh, these kids in private schools go back. So it just was very tragic to watch that happen. So um, you as a parent, that you know what is the best for your child or children, why is having access to in-person learning worth the risk? Um, I think, uh, you know, once we knew the data and that the data that, that, especially among elementary kids, the children really weren't spreaders and that going back could be safe. Um, for us, it was really important to get them back in because we were seeing, particularly with our son, significant psychological, uh, you know, uh, decline. So it was very important for us that he be back in an in-person environment, which is really important for autistic kids, at least for him. I understand there's some parents that have special needs kids, and, and they think it's not uh, you know, safe for them to go back, and that's fine. But for the kids that need to be back and whose parents want them back, you know, it really was important for schools to be open. And we're still in a situation where our, our schools aren't even open full-time. So do you feel like you have lost faith in your local school um, officials mm -hmm. and you have two children still have another 10 years plus in the school district? So how can you move on and keep trusting their decisions? Yeah, I, I, I've heard from a lot of parents around here that they've lost faith in the leadership of, this, of the school board and the superintendent, um, because as many people were crying out to open up schools, especially as we saw the data come along that showed it was safe, uh, both for teachers and for uh, the, the kids. Uh, and then ultimately, even when the teachers are vaccinated and, and somehow in some cases, the school's still not opening, it just, it, it, you start to learn, wonder, okay, well, who are they looking out for here? You know, the kids, we're the ones who have no voice in this, you know, have been suffering. And, and, and you know, when are we going to open schools back up for these kids that really need it? Not just the special needs kids. I'm talking about all kids. Yeah, that's the reason that my first speech on the floor was let's open up all the schools because we set aside enough budget for them. And CDC guidelines, we need $25 billion to open up all the schools. But last year, Congress set aside $72 billion, but still it's not really open, especially living in California. I totally agree with you because it's all shut down. So thank you very much for your testimony. And I yield back, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Steele. Um, uh, I'm just uh, somewhat not confused because we provided money so schools could be safe and safely reopen. and. Now we're complaining that some schools are not opening up. It is starting to open up. Uh, so um, I now yield to Mr. Yarmouth. 
Chairman Yarmouth, uh, my best friend in the budget committee. You have five <laughs> minutes, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to uh, the witnesses for their testimony. You know, so much of uh, the last 14 months, we've seen uh, just the worst kind of politicization of a, a national emergency. And um, both parties have done it, uh, but there have been people involved in decision-making and trying to get through this <clears throat> who I think have been unjustly criticized. And I, this is kind of a set, uh, continuation of, of Ms. Hayes's comments. Um, I've been in a, more than 200 schools since I've been in Congress and I've been in dozens and dozens of special needs classrooms. And uh, I have to say that the special needs teachers in this country, certainly in my district and in Kentucky and uh, I'm sure everywhere are, are some of the greatest heroes that I've, I've ever been exposed to. The, the range of issues that they have to deal with with their students is, is just, uh, it's baffling to me how they can cope with all the challenges that they face and in coming up with uh, individual plans for all of them. And um, so, you know, I, I think we should be able to stipulate Republicans and Democrats that nobody wanted this to happen that everybody wishes it hadn't happened, and that for a long time, and even to the till today, um, we still don't have total information about what we're dealing with, and we're doing the best we can for the most part. And if Gavin Newsom in California takes one steps and then steps, sets of steps and gets, um, uh, has a recall election <laughs> because of it, and Ron DeSantis does other things in Florida, um, my governor, who I think uh, has done an extraordinary job in, in almost every aspect of fighting this, uh, now has a, a legislature who wants to strip him of all of, all of his emergency powers. Uh, so I, I think we ought to take a deep breath and say, uh, first of all, let's make the best that we can of a bad situation. Uh, Mr. Bush, your your story is horrific. I was heartbreaking earlier. It, it truly is, uh, but. You know, I, I don't know how to run a school. Um, I know there are lots of different people in a school, and I know they're all vulnerable. And um, whether the kids are less vulnerable than um, older uh, older Americans is probably not the only factor that determines whether a school can open or not. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know it's not. So anyway, um, I just say, let's, let's vow to learn from this the best we can. Let's try to remediate the damage that's been done, particularly to our kids. And uh, let's uh, make sure we do better the next time. And there probably will be one. So I, uh, Dr. Kovach, I want to ask you, um, what do you see in terms of re relating to all of the, the remediation that's going to have to be done with our kids? What can we do in terms of particularly when, when people with IEPs and, and 504 plans have not been able to uh, get the services they've needed uh, for those and the support they've needed. What can we do with the funds that were provided under the American Rescue Plan to provide extended services or additional services or extended uh, terms of school? What would be your recommendation? Um, thank you so much for that question. So, 
you know, ARP was designed to provide additional supports to all students, including our students with disabilities. So recognizing that we can anticipate some learning loss across the board. I know that in my district, we'll be offering the extended school year for our students with disabilities who are receiving services. And there's also plans in the works to help students who are not receiving services who do have that learning loss to help them again over the summer as well. Um, they're short-term fixes, but I strongly support the long-term investments like fully funding IDEA and addressing the teacher shortage to provide students with disabilities the supports that they are entitled to. Something that occurred to me was in terms of uh, trying to, to uh, facilitate IEPs and, and 504 plans is that it seemed like feedback would be a real big problem if, in terms of developing those plans. If, if you're not getting the constant feedback day to day uh, in person, does that make things much more challenging? Well, my, my job is to educate my students in the free and appropriate education in the least restrictive environment, whether it's virtual or it's in person. And I can say that I do get feedback from my students, regardless of the setting that we're in, and then taking that information and making changes and adjusting their IEP is necessary. So it really, it, it to me, it doesn't matter what setting that we're in, I am able to get feedback from my students. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. My time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Yarmouth. And, and talking about feedback, actually, to be very honest, I am getting working with staff uh, who are 8,000 miles away from where I am. Uh, so, man, amazing things are happening. And so now I'd like to recognize uh, Ms. Lello. I was once in your position, the last one. Um, so please, now you have five minutes, uh, Ms. Thank Lello. You. Chairman Sablon, uh, Mr. Allen, members of the subcommittee and witnesses, thank you for taking the time to discuss the impact COVID-19 has had on students with disabilities. This pandemic has been devastating to our country's school system. It's been a trying year for our teachers, students, and working moms. And while Louisiana was one of the hardest hit of states early in the pandemic, our school systems worked with hospitals and healthcare professionals around the state to put safeguards in place so that almost all of our schools were able to open last fall with a delayed start. As I've traveled around all 24 parishes of my fifth district of Louisiana, I've heard of the tremendous challenges our teachers and students faced while they held classes remotely. I believe it's a huge disservice keeping our children out of school. Without in-person instruction, there are significant losses in learning, social skills, and mental health. These challenges are even greater for students with disabilities. These students need individualized learning and care that cannot be replaced virtually. In fact, only 69% of households in Louisiana have reliable access to internet, so students must result to learning by paper packets. This is a serious problem. Science has shown our students can be in school. Congress has provided more than enough funding to schools so children can safely return to the classroom. Mr. Bush, you mentioned in your testimony that your wife had to quit work to stay home and homeschool your daughter. There are millions of parents, and particularly women, who have had to make the same sacrifice. You also talk about the medical challenges your son has faced. Would you mind sharing more with us how the last nearly 14 months has impacted your family? Uh, yes, I appreciate the question, and condolences to you and your family, because I know the, this has struck you very personally, too. Um, but yeah, we've been devastated. This has just been devastating to watch uh, 
what's happened to our son psychologically to see him screaming and having hallucination and screaming on end for hours to think that he's jumping on a trampoline and think that there's a cobra on his back. He was a normal, almost a normal, so normal of a child last year, at least he appeared so normal that a lot of his teachers didn't even think that he was autistic. And now he's a one-to-one, he requires one-to-one support. And the doctors have said, said to us all along, the longer he's not in school in an in-person learning environment and engaged with teachers and peers, the more likely that this will become his permanent identity. So now we, we're really concerned that our child, who was almost unrecognizably autistic a year ago, this could be his permanent identity, having these hallucinations and, and stemming constantly. It's just, tra- it's tragic and it's been heartbreaking to watch. And it's, I know this is true for many, many other parents out there with kids with special needs. Thank you so much for sharing that your story and the difficulties that you faced this past year. And I hope your kids can return to school soon. Uh, Chairman, I yield back my remaining time. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Ledlow. Um, Mr. Desarnier, uh, sir, um, you have five minutes, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you um, to all the witnesses. Uh, and um, I guess um, a glass half full person that the challenges of COVID and all the suffering, um, maybe there's an opportunity here, particularly for this population. So uh, Mr. Hager and uh, Ms. Tillerson, I guess first, let me say that in California, I have a good deal of experience in the legislature and local government. In the DD community, we have the history of Pat Brown, Governor Brown, um, and then Ronald Reagan, um, and a combination of those things, helping the DD community and special needs folks. But uh, even in California, never fully funding these programs that work in public schools, uh, realizing that private schools, while they're different, um, and it's not apples to apples, um, but we can learn from one another. So. Coming out of COVID with all this pressure, with an increase uh, in the needs with um, autism and other issues, and because of COVID, maybe you could talk about uh, what you're seeing in terms, and I had a bill and I intend to reintroduce it to provide more services for advocacy um, for both of you. Uh, And I hate the litigious nature of this, but it's necessary in my view because we've never fully funded or met our obligations to this segment of the population. So maybe you can help me understand how we can use this opportunity perhaps coming out, even though there'll be greater needs to fully fund these programs in a way that works for the clients. Uh, Mr. Hager and then Ms. Tillerson. Thank you. Uh, Representative Tassanier, the the protection advocacy system was created in the mid seventies because of horrible horrible exposés in institutional settings. And that was really supposed to be the main focus of the Protection Advocacy Network. We came into existence almost the same time as IDEA went into effect. So we had all these parents of children with disabilities desperate for support, desperate for representation, coming to the PNA network. So from the beginning, we've had a tension between our mission to protect individuals that are institutionalized, but also this pressure to provide services to right. families that are uh, special led. So we don't have any dedicated funding for special ed advocacy. We've used our other funding from other programs to do that. So one of the things that would definitely help us 
is the ability to get funding that would be dedicated to doing education advocacy. As I said during my testimony, we have obviously, as everyone else has, been stressed with trying to meet the needs of uh, families and parents that are not getting the services they need. And we know that it's going to increase as parents come back because there's going to be so many families that are in desperate situations because their kids have lost so much. So we definitely are anticipating additional need. Thank you. And, and to your point, before we go to Ms. Littleton, the history in California was it was an L.A. Times a series of stories that got Governor Brown's attention, Governor Pat Brown, and then came this historic bill here that was led by a Republican conservative member of the state assembly. Um, but the revenue, the savings from, for instance, uh, selling a lot of those institutions that were higher cost that didn't serve the community well, morally, ethically, or um, just from a cost standpoint, never went back to reinvest in the savings. And that was um, somewhat Governor Reagan's fault. Ms. Littleton, if you could add to the observations. Well, it's similar to the PNA system, the parent centers also began in the 70s through efforts from uh, parent advocates and individuals with disabilities themselves. And so the key component of the parent centers is to promote parent advocacy. And we do that by educating parents and supporting parents to understand the process. So we find that if they are educated, they can work with their school teams to get the supports needed for their individualized child. IDEA is about individualism. So an IEP is going to be written specific to the needs of a specific child. So we see spectrum disorders where one kid may need one service and another needs another one. But if that parent can advocate for their child, then it, we have seen great success. Even through remote learning, we've seen great success with parents being able to advocate for their children's needs. So funding the parent training and information centers is highly important so that we can continue to do that work and supporting and educating parents and creating advocates um, among parents and among individuals so that they can advocate for themselves because there will never be enough educational advocates to support all families who need that support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Ms. Wilson, I skipped you my sincerest apologies, but let me recognize Mr. Keller for five minutes and then you're next. Uh, Mr. Keller, please, you have five minutes. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I was pleased to see that over half the population of Pennsylvania has had an opportunity for at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine. We are clearly approaching the end of the emergency period of this pandemic. However, schools should have been opened long ago. The science is clear. School-aged children are less likely to transmit COVID-19 to others. Now that it, the frontline workers the elderly, at-risk populations, and those with underlying health conditions have, had, have largely been given access to a vaccine. We need to be getting students back into the classroom so they can take advantage of precious learning opportunities. Only 46% of the schools are currently open for in-person instruction, which is unacceptable. Um, Mr. Bush, I thank you for sharing your story. I wish nothing but the best for your family as we begin to get students back into school full time. Can you explain why many schools reopened um, back in the fall of 2020? Uh, so around where we lived, there were many schools that opened up. Um, 
as far as private schools that opened up, there weren't really any public schools in the DC area that, that opened up. But I know that there were schools in other, other states that were opening up full time. And that was qu quite a mystery to us is how are these other school systems doing it? And our school system can't seem to do it. Again, we were one of the most well-funded school systems in the country. I was part of a, a group of parents advocating for the return. We brought in a doctor from Harvard to uh, help the school system with ventilation. We did everything we could, but we just kept hearing every month, month after month, we got to wait another month, wait another month, wait another month. And at some point you see your kids suffering and it's just like, you you, you know, it, you start throwing your hands up. And it's like, why can't we open the schools whenever so many other schools are doing it successfully? Um, and, and so, uh, you know, where we're at right now, there is this projected $12 million surplus coming on to the end of the school year. And that's before the American Rescue Plan. Yet the schools still are only open in a hybrid fashion. That's two days a week for the majority of the kids. Uh, Monday is a remote day and Tuesday through, through Friday are shortened days where kids mostly go only two days a week. So it, to me, it, it's a mystery that so many private schools have been able to open up and some other public schools in the country, but our school system here and a lot of the schools in the D.C. area haven't. Did, did they give you any uh, uh, specifics as why they've been so hesitant to reopen the Arlington County schools? I mean, I think initially there was a lot of concern about how the disease spread and the, the safety for kids returning. And I certainly understood that. Um, but as I said, there was a lot of systems that, that had the ability to do it. Then we heard there were logistical issues and most recently, they said, oh, it's just too logistically complicated to open up the schools. Um, I think that's kind of selling, you know, selling things short. I, the, the kids need schools to be open. And logistically, you know, I mean, again, they opened up schools in Haiti last fall. If they can open up schools in Haiti, why can't they open up schools in Arlington, Virginia, one of the most well-funded schools and uh, school systems in the, in the whole country? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and, and another question I guess I would like to get your perspective on is what do individual education programs or IEPs uh, for students with disabilities look like in the part-time schooling environment you described? Well, for, for kids that have high number of hours, like you know 30 hours of service, reduced school weeks being reduced hours of services. And these are reduced learning hours that they will never able to be able to get back. So, uh, and then as far as application of things like PT and OT, speech therapy, these things done over a virtual environment, I'll say the speech therapist working with our kids has really done a phenomenal job of trying to do it virtually. But, you know, for the kids doing physical therapy, you just can't replicate that in a virtual environment. Um, and then certainly for doing things like reading. My son, if you sit there and read next to him, he's engaged. But when the teacher reads to him over an iPad, he's completely unengaged. So reading, that's one of the reasons he's fallen behind a year with reading is he just cannot engage virtually. So kids with special needs, are, they have, they're not, they don't have typical, a lot of them don't have what we call typical brains. They're neuroatypical and it's very hard for them to engage with their IEPs. So they're, you know, from a, the standpoint of IEPs in the law, the, the, the school systems really are not meeting the law for these kids for their IEPs. Well, uh, thank you for that, and, and I, I want—I wish that uh, we can get everybody back. I'm hopeful that we can get everybody back, uh, all our students in the classroom, so they can get the education they, they, they need and deserve. Uh, with that, I thank you, and I yield back. Thank you. Thank for you. Time. Thank you, Mr. Keller. Um, and now, the very patient. My apologies, um, Miss Wilson. Please. No worries, Mr. Chairman. 
Uh, I just want to remind everyone that we had a we are in the midst of a very serious pandemic. And uh, I live in Miami, and uh, our schools are half open, half closed. But it's parental choice, and those children who do go to school, they can't even go for a long period of time because a quarantine happens in the school every week. So they have to close down certain classes. So I have a granddaughter who caught COVID because her mother is a principal and she tried to go to school with her and she brought COVID home to the whole family. So this is very dangerous. This isn't something that we're just playing with and deciding that schools must be closed. People died, grandmothers died because children brought the COVID home. And so teachers had to be very cautious about this. Our school district was very cautious. We tried to accommodate our governor who is, 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 is uh, not very well, who made the schools open, but it didn't help because the children were back and forth because of quarantine. However, we passed the American Rescue Plan to try to remedy all of this so that all of our children can go back to school. And not one single Republican, Mr. Bush, voted for the plan to help your children go back to school. All the Democrats had to do all of the work and pass this plan. So I have lots of questions that I need to ask, so I'm gonna submit them for the record. But I do want to ask uh, Ms. Kovach, uh, now that we have $3 billion in IDA funding, what other resources should we consider offering to ensure that the social and emotional needs of students are met as they trans position back into in-person learning very carefully. Thank you so much for that question. And I, I do wanna say first that I think we can all agree that we do want our students back in school, but I think we all do know that school should be a place for students where they feel safe, where they feel loved and they feel cared for. Um, and I agree with you by saying, you know, COVID, COVID is dangerous and this is because of COVID and there are so many unknowns. Um, and I do have concerns about my students and their social emotional health. And um, we do need to, as we get back into school, focus on our students. We need to make sure that we are putting money into personnel that can be equipped to handle our students. And this is not just students with disabilities. This is students across the board who are going to need assistance when they come back into school and, and they do now. Um, also, to provide teachers with training on how to help their students dealing with what they have been through over this pandemic. So they, there's definitely, you know, those resources alone, the training for teachers, more uh, professional in the classroom to help them um, are certainly ways that we can help our students as we transition back. Uh, Ms. Littlejohn, would you please tell us more about the experiences of low-income students with disabilities who may have had limited access to technology or high-speed internet and how we can best support them as they transition back. Well, thank you for that question, uh, Representative Wilson. Um, some of the barriers that we saw for low-income students was, again, the at lack of devices, lack of access to internet, um, and things like that, and also a lack of support people at home to help them during remote learning. So we did see in Michigan a lot of districts being very innovative in the way that they service those students. 
um, whether it was recording lessons on a flash drive and sending that home so that they didn't need internet access, whether it was providing um, assistive technology and educational materials through paper packet where the parent could come and pick it up. And then uh, we, they also provided training on how to navigate learning platforms or how to um, work with children at home. So I think investing in uh, you know, different ways, innovative, creative strategies for educators to use to support students um, is would be very benef beneficial for um, low-income students as well. Okay, Mr. Hager, tell us why you think it's important to provide an extended year of eligibility for service under IDEA. Well, it's going to take a long time for students to catch up. Thank you for the question, Representative Wilson. Sorry, um, and for students that are nearing the edge of their educational eligibility it's probably gonna need a good year for them to catch up. So that is, I think, one of the important things to look at. Thank you, I yield back. I have questions uh, for the record to submit to the committee, Mr. Thank Sablon. You. Thank you. All right, thank you, thank you, Ms. Wilson. Um, I now recognize Ms. Macbeth, please. Five minutes, Lucy. Thank you so much, Mr. Chair, and thank each of our witnesses uh, for being with us today and helping us to kind of really understand the impact that this pandemic has had on our students with disabilities. And I know that we realize that even though some students have been successful in a virtual learning environment, you know, that's not the case for everyone. That's not the case for every student. And we need to understand how best to support all of our students as they transition back to the in-person classroom. In March, uh, this subcommittee, we had a hearing on what educational equity should look like uh, post-COVID-19. And one of our witnesses at that hearing, it was uh, Ms. Celine Almazan, told us how the Department of Education Secretary um, Cardona reached out to the disability community within the first week of his confirmation and has worked with organizations such as Center for Learning Equity, and we'll call it COPPA, and National Center for Learning Disabilities to ensure students with disabilities are a priority in school reopening plans. Ms. Kovach, because Secretary Cardona is, has really stressed the importance of prioritizing returning students with disabilities to the classroom uh, as soon as it's safe to do so in accordance with the public health, gu public health guidelines, Many school districts across the country brought students with disabilities back to the classroom even before other students were able to do so. So in fact, this was the case for students in Cobb County in my district, uh, part of uh, you know Cobb County, which is in my district. And when did your students actually begin to return to in-person learning? And how was that transition? How's, how's that been uh, so far for the students that you're taking the time and effort to teach? Thank you so much for that question. My school district, the entire district um, opened up in September and for students in general education, they had an alternating A, B week schedule. So where one group of students was in class, the other group was hybrid. For our students in special education, which would be my classroom as well, we came back because we have a smaller group, we were in, in person fully. Um, and the goal was to have all of our students in special education in school fully. Unfortunately, within the first, I think it was seven days, my class was the first that had to quarantine because of COVID exposure. So from that time until now, we have been in person, quarantined, 
in person and quarantined. So there definitely was some inconsistencies for my students, which was difficult to adapt to. Um, but we took each moment as a learning moment and we focused on the importance of our health and our safety. We were not happy with the situation of going virtual, but that was the world that we were in. And, you know, making sure that my students were instructed in the technology that we, we were using was key. And when it was safe for us to return to the classroom, we did so. And we tried very hard, we focused on the positive. And, um, you know, we're still, we're back in person now in a half day and my students are with me virtual from my classroom in the afternoon. So I'm, I'm hoping and I'm staying positive that we will be able to stay in person until the end of the school year. Well, thank you for that. And I hope that does really happen. And Ms. Littleton, the American Rescue Plan provides significant federal funding um, to districts for elementary and secondary schools about $130 billion, I believe. And Congress was clear that these funds should be used to address the academic, the social and emotional and mental health impacts of um, the pandemic on our nation's children, um, students. And so particularly those groups of students that were dis disproportionately impacted. And how do you think those funds should be uh, used to address students' needs? Thank you for that question, Representative McBath. Um, again, speaking as not only a, you know, the director of a parent training and information center, but also the parent of three students who have experienced challenges during this pandemic, um, I believe that investing in, re in high scope curriculums that focus on acceleration of learning, not just recovery of learning, but acceleration of learning is one step. Also investing in hiring more educators as we face a significant teacher shortage um, you know, recruiting educators back into the field to work with students, especially our special students who are receiving special education. And also professional development and training for current existing support staff and professional and educators on, again, implementing the use of multi-tiered systems and supports um, will be so beneficial because there are a number of different challenges that students are going to face, whether they're learning virtually or and as they transition back into the classroom. And in Michigan, we are transitioning back into the classroom um, and identifying the barriers that students have faced from remote learning. And we are doing our best to address those challenges with the additional funding. I think the additional funding, especially for IDEA, is important. Thank you for that. I yield back the balance of my time if there's any. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you, Ms. Macbeth. And now for the most patient member of this subcommittee, uh, Mr. Bowman. Sir, you have five minutes. I, thank Listen, you. I used to be I used to be a middle school principal, so I know how to be patient. So thank thank you very much. Um, and I'm asking these questions uh, and making my comments both as a parent of three children, one with special needs, as a former middle school principal and as a public school educator for 20 years. Uh, I just first want to acknowledge that, you know, I hate to politicize anything relating to our children, but I think we should acknowledge that when the, when the coronavirus first hit our shores, uh, the administration did not take it seriously initially. And if we did take it seriously and respond accordingly, uh, maybe we would have been able to get our schools open uh, more quickly and more safely. But unfortunately, there was lag time and uh, we're still seeing the ramification of those struggles. 
Um, so my question is to uh, Dr. Hager, uh, Ms. Kovach, and Ms. Littleton, okay? I'm putting the three of you in charge of designing the perfect learning environment for our children when they return. I'm so excited that we passed the American Rescue Plan. We have a lot of resources coming in. But as you all know, as we all know, it's not just money. It's about the design of the learning spaces. And you've all mentioned things like individualization, um, social and emotional learning, acceleration of learning, MTSS. Um, I would like you all to speak to and try to be brief because I know we don't, we don't have as much time. Uh, speak to what an ideal learning environment might look like once we fully open for our kids, assuming everyone is safe and the resources are, are there. We'll go Littleton, Kovach, Hager. Thank you, Representative. I think the, the ideal learning environment would be one that focuses on universal design for learning and has um, staff who are fully trained to support all students' needs, whether they be students who are receiving special education or our typical general education students. So having a fully trained uh, staff of educators and support, support staff would be ideal. In 10 seconds, what is universal design for learning? Please tell us that. It is a technique that um, offers strategies for teachers to teach learners of all abilities. So whether they have a cognitive impairment or a behavioral issue, we are using strategies and technique, techniques that will help all students. Awesome. Thank you, Ms. Kovach. So I think that based on what we've been through in the past, we need to look towards the future because I think education will look very different. Um, and one of the things is access to technology for our students, especially for our students with disabilities, to have um, the assistive technology that they need in the in the hopefully we won't, but if the chance that we need to go virtually again, um, that they do have that access that they need to learn virtually and to be successful. Um, and also again, focusing on our students, their social emotional um, learning and making sure that we have support for them in, in way of personnel and also training for everyone um, to help our students to be successful. Ms. Kovach, what does uh, focusing on social and emotional learning look like? Can you give me a real concrete, specific look at that in the classroom, in the school, in the community? I can. Um, actually, one of the things I do with my students, and I brought it with me, is we take a mindful minute every half hour in between transition, my students have face cards where they are able to tell me how they're feeling, but matching the face, and then what we can do to help them keep going. And honestly, sometimes it's just a student will have the picture of I'm hungry, and I know, okay, I'm going to feed you. And that plays into their social emotional learning. If a student is hungry, they're not going to be able to learn because they're focused on their growling tummy. So something like this, just to be in tune with how our students are feeling and then knowing what's, what I can give them to support them to make their education the best it can possibly be. Thank you. Ms. Hager. Thank you for that question. The um, First of all, we have a lot of resources available in money, but we need to get the personnel on the ground. So the, 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 the support specialists, the mental health counselors, others that can provide that underlying support for the, for the students is a critical one. We've heard about the lack of teachers. I would also say that teacher training is critical. One of the things I've seen over the years is that the students aren't really getting their individualized needs met because many of the teachers don't have the training 
to really know how to identify what is the learning style for that child. What is when a student is acting out? What is that behavior communicating? How can we address that behavior in a way that's appropriate as opposed to using punitive uh, approaches, whether it's discipline and suspension or restraint and seclusion? So the teachers need that training uh, so that they can appropriately act and interact with their students. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. You're back. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bowman. Um, so I'm going to ask, um, I have several questions. I'm going to ask to a list. Um, Dr. Kovacs, because uh, you have alluded to this uh, in more than one instance. Um, Aristotle once said, I think that educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. And, and so I try to remind myself that, um, that I, um, and I have two, because maybe because I have two teachers in my family, that we should be celebrating the never-ending selflessness of our amazing teachers. Um, and so uh, we have heard about how difficult instant distance learning was for many teachers, parents, and multiple students, particularly students with disabilities. However, the pandemic has demonstrated that in some cases, remote learning can be an effective teaching tool. So what lessons, Dr. Kovacs, what lessons can we learn about utilizing remote learning and the ways that it could potentially improve education in the future, particularly for our students with disabilities? Thank you for that question. And the one thing that I, I found over this pandemic, um, and of course with education, it's about building relationships. It's a an entire community in order to help our students. And in a virtual world, I've found that I've been able to connect with parents more um, than traditionally. So my virtual back to school night, I had just about 100% participation. IEP meetings virtually, all parents were there. Um, even our, our ways of communication now, uh, just within this, this meeting that we're having, I've gotten four or five messages from parents with questions on their students' homework. So our ability to communicate has been heightened and building that family relationship as well and, and parents being able to reach out and feel comfortable asking for help, you know, has really, I, I, I I just love the bond that has brought us together because we're, we're all, you know, we're in different boats, but we're in the same storm. So it, it's really brought us together. And I have seen so many successes with the virtual learning as well. It's not that we have not had any, uh, you know, working in small group one-on-one, -on -one, even when the pandemic first started and being able to work with my students virtually, I've had students that have, have, gained, um, you know, levels in their reading because of, you know, us being able to go back and forth one-on-one. -on -one. Right. So you. there is definitely a, a, some progress as well. Right. And I can imagine being a student, I probably like you as a teacher. You you have heart, Miss Miss Kovacs. I can 8,000 miles away virtual. And actually, I, if I may say, I think we have two teachers of the year in this virtual room. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kovacs and, and Congresswoman Hayes. Wow, we're lucky. So um, let me also um, ask um, Ms. Littleton, um, in your testimony, you talked about the challenges many parents have faced when implementing components of their child's individualized education program, their IEP plan at home. Uh, what 
ongoing supports do you think would be helpful to aid, to assist in the transition back to in-person learning? Thank you, uh, Chairman Saban. Um, I believe that the supports that would be successful to helping parents are um, some of the things that we've seen Michigan do, which is to create um, trainings and webinars for families on implementing at-home teaching strategies, um, working on literacy, um, and then working with schools as the, the children transition back into the, uh, the building. Um, also, um, training provided by the Parent Training and Information Center, um, including communicating with your school's IEP team, making sure that your student has the individualized needs, working on dispute resolution if there is a situation that comes up that you don't agree with. Um, our center offers one-on-one -on -one support to families to be able to do this. So we have been fortunate enough to partner with our Department of Education to really provide training, information, resources um, to families as we all try to navigate the, uh, this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so um, uh, that basically concludes our member questions. And um, so I want to first thank our witnesses. Let me go. Let me see. Uh, Mr. Hager, Dr. Kovacs, Ms. Littleton, and Mr. Mr. Bush. I want to thank our witnesses uh, for taking the time to share their experiences and expertise. The compelling testimony we hear, heard today shed a helpful light on the wide range of challenges that students with disabilities have endured during the pandemic. And it reminded us that like nearly every consequence of the pandemic, these challenges existed long before COVID-19. However, we also heard how for some students with disabilities and their families, the pandemic and transition to remote learning have revealed unexpected opportunities for learning and collaboration. Whether negative or positive, all of these experiences are critical lessons, not only for future national emergencies, but to better understand how we can meet the needs of students with disabilities moving forward. I am pleased that today we identify some of the steps districts, schools, and educators must take to learn from these lessons and uphold students with disabilities' right to free and appropriate education. As schools across the country reopen for full-time, in-person instruction, I look forward to working with my colleagues to ensure that those students with disabilities can access equal education opportunities and reach their full potential. And seeing no further business before this subcommittee, I hereby adjourn and thank you again, everyone, for your patience. Uh, hold on, hold on. I'm getting a message here. Okay, I gotta do one more thing, please. Uh, Thank you. Hold on. Now I have to find it. Um, oh, man. Please bear with me. I'm working with uh, staff who are 8,000 miles away. Just so the witnesses know, the chairman will get up at 3 a.m. sometimes to make our, our hearing. So we are yeah, always no. 
happy to be um, patient with him. He makes every hearing, even though he's in a time zone halfway across the world. Yeah, actually, I started at midnight. Um, I, I, I try to find something here. Um, okay. Um, I, I, I need. I remind my colleagues that pursuant to committee practice, materials for submission for the hearing record must be submitted to the committee clerk within 14 days following the last date or day of the hearing. So by close of business on May 20, May 20, 2021, preferably in micro word soft, micro soft word format. The materials submitted must, for, must address the subject matter of the hearing. Only a member of the subcommittee or an invited witness may submit materials for inclusion in the hearing record. Documents are limited to 50 pages each. Documents longer than 50 pages will be incorporated into the record via an internet link that you must provide to the committee clerk within the required timeframe. But please recognize that in the future, that link may no longer work. Pursuant to House Rules and Regulations, items for the record should be submitted to the clerk electronically by emailing submissions to edandlabor.hearings at mail dot house dot gov. That again that's ed and labor dot hearings at mail dot house dot gov. And so um yeah so well we did it in two hours. Uh, if there's no further business without objection um the subcommittee stands adjoined. Thank you everyone. To those who would tear the world down we will defeat you. This is our moment this is our time. To those who seek security we support you yes we can and to all those who have wondered if america's beacon still burns as bright tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy liberty opportunity and unyielding hope let me tell you something you already know the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, they will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take it and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. We wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, Podable, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making.
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.